Hi, More Than Work listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the United States Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade on June 24th, which stripped away the right to have legal and safe abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive health care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all people, which we've already seen with abortion bans and restrictions in countries like Poland and Malta. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive health care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans and all people who, who could get pregnant anywhere in the world. Listen more by visiting podvoices.health. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. This is More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is made up of more than your job title. Each week, I'll talk to a guest about how they discovered that for themselves. You'll hear about what they did, what they're doing, and who they are. I'm your host, Rabia. I work in IT, perform stand-up comedy, write, volunteer, and, of course, podcast. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Hello, and welcome back to More Than Work this week. This is episode three of season six, and I'm glad you're here. If you're listening on the day it drops or another day, this is a really important episode. I recorded it actually back in March. It's just taken a while to get it up, but it's with Martin Henson of the Be Men Foundation. Be Men, you'll hear about, is an organization that basically works with black men on issues that affect black men. It came out of the Me Too movement, and I'll leave it for Martin, the founder, to tell you why, but it... To me, this conversation is one of those ones that I was hoping to be able to have on this podcast because I talked to someone who was a Black Lives Matter activist. Now he has this foundation, and it's very inclusive as far as gender identity and as far as sexuality, and that really impressed me, and it's Pride Month. So I think it's a great time for this episode to air. We're also just coming off of Juneteenth, and Martin talks a lot about his work dealing with race issues. We had kind of a hard conversation at one point because I just, I asked him what, what I could do as an ally. And that's the one question you're really not supposed to ask the people who you want to be an ally to, but he gave me a great answer. And I really asked it so that other people could hear the answer. And I just appreciate the graciousness with which Martin received my questions and received me. I, what I want you to get out of this is just really to learn how to be an ally to those who you want to be an ally to. And that could include yourself. I think recently I found out more about how to better do that for myself and figure out where I fit in. These issues that some people deal with and these causes they fight for, whether they're for themselves too or just for others, they can take a toll. And Martin had some great feedback on what he does to find balance and what he does to have it not take too much out of him. I work with the MS society a lot. Sometimes that takes a toll. Sometimes that's difficult because I have multiple sclerosis. And though I feel very lucky in my path of the the disease, I also feel like when I do certain work in that area, it's difficult for other people like 
Martin, it's around race and issues around being black in America and even in the world. And for you, it might be something else, but I hope that you really enjoy this chat with Martin, that you learn something. Let me know what you learn. If you want, let me know your feedback. And again, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you listening. Have a great day or night, or I guess it'd be one of those where you are. And don't forget to leave a review and um, rating or subscribe if you want. Thank you so much. Welcome back to More Than Work, everyone. My guest this week is Martin Henson. He's executive director of the organization Be Men, which we're going to get into what that is and what he does. Um, thanks for being a guest. Thanks for having me. I, I uh, love talking about what I do as many ways as I can, so I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited too, definitely. So uh, where am I talking to you from right now? I'm in Boston right now. Is that where you're normally based? I'm normally based here. I'm also from Arkansas. Been in seven years doesn't make me a bostonian they this no let you know <laughs> no. but yeah that's yeah right. yeah they're very specific about who's actually a bostonian i think they're yes yeah. Yeah. yeah totally <laughs> cool let's first talk about just what is the b-men foundation and about what that work is that that they do as an organization yeah b-men foundation uh, stands for black male engagement network and it's organization has created for black men to work on issues specific to black men. Um, we do all this in an inclusive way, making sure that we have you know, all black men, black, straight, queer, trans involved in how we advocate. And we do a variety of things, including a, a monthly meeting. We do a lot of advocacy, both digitally and in community around the issues that are specific to black men and how to talk about it in different ways. We do programming. Uh, we've done some COVID relief. We've done some work around sexual harm. And we, we're really focused on humanizing black men, creating more support spaces for them uh, with the understanding that once we do that, we can create better, stronger communities. So mm. that's, that's B-Men in a, in a bottle for you. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you come to decide to start that organization? Yeah, there's a few, few different paths. I think they all align in different ways. I'm, I'm a person who processes things later, like something can happen and it, it and I'll move and react in ways that that are trying to adjust to that. Uh, but I, I'm not a person who immediately knows, hey, I'm gonna do this in this way and it's going to happen just like that. Mm -hmm. So B-Man originally started in response to me too. And just me looking around and just seeing how men in general were responding to what was going on. And I wanted to do something. And then I was like, okay, men of color have a different reality. Then I was like, black men have a really different reality. Then I started talking to black men about it. Oh, black men need space to process all of these things. Mm -hmm. Because we can't just talk about black men in a way that just assumes that they're inherently predatory. The conversation around the sexual harm is expansive. So then you have spaces just for black men to process. Mm -hmm. And from there, you, you do all the things you have to do organizationally to make a thing occur. And now you have B-Men Foundation that's been around for four years. Mm. And I guess with the response to Me Too, I mean, I think I, I think of Me Too a lot of times in a very myopic way of women's experiences with men 
But I do know that people can be sexually assaulted if they're not women. And it's not always assault anyway. It's other microaggressions and behaviors towards women was what I was thinking of. But how did it how did it manifest itself looking at it from the perspective of black men? Was it partly processing it like I'm not that kind of guy and I don't do that kind of stuff? But also I've had this experience. I actually really have strong feelings about that approach that men tend to have. Because largely I feel like it just it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to think about it that way. But we, you know, as a guy, we kind of make our steps to understand that moving from a, a more defensive space. When I started to think about the things that were happening, I just, it was the realization that, that me too was largely gender specific as in mm-hmm. focused on women or, or people who are perceived as women. And I, I was like, well, what, how do we talk about this when, when it happens for men? Mm. And I realized that men had a whole different paradigm or the world has a different paradigm for how we look at men being victims. And mm-hmm. with that is is more different when you think about black men being victims and the, the victimization that black men have had to exist under. So the language of support and even victimization that was coming from me too didn't translate over to men. And although men could in theory respond in the same way, uh, but they would, they would not be responded to in the same way. Mm-hmm. So just, yeah. it just, all of that kind of said, well, we need something specific for black men to be, to be human, to be vulnerable, to, to think about themselves in different ways and navigate consent, not just from a way of, again, as a, as a perpetrator, because that's, it gets into racialized uh, mm-hmm. framings of black men. When you start to do that, but mm. all of the ways that we engage this. So I moved and, and, and the people who are creating it with me moved from the space that was a specific reaction to sexual harm, to a more holistic approach to black men that included and acknowledged the reality that we also have that too. Mm-hmm. So just more expansive and then focus on black men specifically. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, I mean, just a lot of times what I, what you hear in, in media or like in different in entertainment and stuff is it's almost like trivialized when men are harassed in a certain way, especially if it's by a woman, then it's like, Oh, you know, they, then they make jokes about the women kind of thing and mm-hmm. jokes about the man, but it could be traumatic for, for the guy. And it might not be like necessarily physically as scary in a way if someone's smaller than you, but it's also, it's really harmful, right? If women are acting that way and then you, and then you get outside of the, whole women and men thing and just expand to same same sex or same i guess gender mm-hmm. doing things and whatever or or people being young and things like that and so i can see where and there's shame created for men that's different than women too because it's almost like except it's almost accepted that women you know it's like one in how many now get have experienced some form of sexual harassment or assault anyway so it's kind of accepted that women will say that that's happened to them because Everyone knows it does, but for men, it doesn't seem as like accepted socially, I guess. Yeah, not at all. And and it's, and then when you start to talk about men as victims, you get very curious reactions. The ones that I, I that I just really didn't expect, largely that m- men are trying to take space away from women, or they don't really mm. care. It's just they're just arguing. Uh, and and I think what's happening for people who is that they've, they're, let's say for a lot of women, they're given a space to be seen and heard and understood within their experience. And 
and when you've never had a conversation around men experiencing things, these things too, it can be difficult for folks to lean into that and see where we're more alike than different because mm -hmm. so much of, let's say for women, their harm might be originating with men. So mm -hmm. just finding that specific way that men can really speak with each other and affirm each other's experience has been so much of what I do and then the, the stigma and shame that encompasses all of these things that impact us, not just sexual harm. Those are things that interest me and, and mm -hmm. be men as an organization is really working to get rid of that because there's so many negative outcomes that come from having to live with that. Mm -hmm. Well, and you, you mentioned too, that it's inclusive as far as gender and sexuality and, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a space for queer men or for, transgender and i know one thing just in the the movement i'm familiar with right in feminism there's this whole idea that it's not as intersectional as it should be and people are excluded based on you know gender assignment at birth and things like that and so that's been a big criticism of the the women's movement for a long time actually and and that it, it's excluded people of color right i mean that's a big one like there's white feminists who are very specific and not inclusive and then other and then, you know, or that it's been seen that way. And then there's work to be more inclusive, at least by people who acknowledge it. And so how did you and your organization, did you immediately decide you were going to be inclusive? Or was that something you came to realize needed to happen over time? I, I think I immediately knew I wanted to be inclusive. In my, my network of people who were supportive, a lot of uh, black queer men that I was just talking to about what was happening and how, and they were putting me onto the fact that when we talk about things with black men, there's just kind of unspoken rule that we're, that we're not really talking about men who are gay. Mm -hmm. we're, we're looking at them in this very, uh, I guess heteronormative framework. And I try to, to, to lean away from the, the heavy, uh, terms that have a lot of, academia that come with them because the average person isn't thinking like that but that's you know pretty much what the framing was we and we don't mm -hmm. realize that we do that and they were just kind of putting me onto this so from there i was like all right well we need to actually have a space that's intentionally inclusive one of the side effects is that when i go into other spaces and i say hey be men you know and intentionally inclusive to all men straight queer trans the people look at it like oh well this this group just works for gay men and because it's it's almost like to even acknowledge it in a specific way means that it, mm -hmm. it must it just these are all things that you have to deal with when you're just like it, it seems like common sense right but it's it's not necessarily yeah it's it's interesting right i've done some study more recently on like policy creation so and looking at who you include in policies and who benefits from them and things like that. And it's it's been a thing that I've realized is if you don't intentionally include people, then you could be excluding them. Then if the perception becomes that because you included them, it's only for them, it's kind of a weird thing. And yes, it's, yes, yes. It, it, so one thing I learned in a leadership course is sometimes people don't want to accept change because they feel like something's being taken from them. Yeah. And it's almost like the people who fall under the heteronormative place. And I don't really talk about that much on this podcast either, but just it is how our biases are formed because it is how things became cultural norms. And so it's like people do feel like something's being taken from them, even though your organization didn't even exist, but somehow now it's not for them and someone else is coming and taking it. And it's a weird thing where 
they don't see inclusivity and having more voices as actually benefiting everyone. Yeah, and and I I value that, and I'm always trying to push in ways that I'm not normally or most likely to be acclimated toward. So, for example, I'm a straight man. I, I I don't know what gay men go through intuitively. I have to build these spaces that allow me to 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 hear that and see that and think about it. Same is true for for black trans men. But when you get into the the discussions around it, I think sometimes I, I end up find, feeling like I'm caught in the middle of how people would like to perceive it because in very progressive spaces or very liberal activist, radical, whatever you want to call it, they want the language to come with the advocacy. And I'm like, if I'm talking to them around being a just regular guys who don't move in these spaces or use this language around how to be inclusive to gay men, I'm not going to be like, well, we have to unpack the heteronormative assumptions of the ways that we navigate in life and how it marshals. I'm not going to talk like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm going I'm to I'm say, hey, you know, hey, folks is gay. You know, you, you think you got 20 dudes in here? You think nobody's gay? Like, what, so we're going to just leave this person out because, yeah. you know, that you have to kind of be almost more blunt in certain ways. Mm-hmm. But, but that's what it takes to pull people in. What I say and what keeps me grounded is that most people, if you think about where they are in terms of change or feeling strongly about ideas, most people don't care. Mm-hmm. And then you have the people who are on the extremes who like care a lot and people who are actually against it. So yeah. my job is to, to move people a little bit to a place where they're more supportive, not to make mm-hmm. them move like me, you know? Right. So, yeah. 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 And you're right. I mean, you have to meet people where they are. And I think we've lost sight of that a lot in, in general as a society. I mean, I'm definitely more liberal and I definitely think that language matters and what we say matters and stuff. And so I do stand up comedy and I, I could write, I could probably write very offensive jokes just because I think I don't, I'll just say, yeah, I probably have offensive thoughts. I know a lot of people do. I don't think we all operate like a hundred percent in this great space all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I choose not to do that, right? I choose right. to use language that's, I think is acceptable and I'm okay saying, and I'm okay someone calling me out on, mm-hmm. you know? But I do think it's funny how there's no space for learning sometimes and there needs to be. And like, so the people you're talking about, or even if I talk to my family and stuff about things and maybe I've learned and I've, I spent time with people. So I've understood a problem more and I, understand my role in trying to help or or staying away because it's not helpful if i'm trying to help mm-hmm. but i need to talk to them in a way that they're going to be able to listen and process and if i just say some again like some super academic thing or whatever they might not process it and then we've gotten nowhere it's almost like just making them feel stupid and talking down to them instead of talking to them where they are so it makes sense what you're doing in other words yeah yeah i like it i yeah. like that. i meet a ton of dope people i'm constantly learning so i enjoy it yeah so you mentioned how the organization started out, but you're basically an activist, mm-hmm. really. That's one word to, to describe you, I think. But before that, you were working as a counselor. So can you talk a little bit about the work you had started doing and then how you evolved into pivoting to activism? And they're probably related anyway, I imagine. Yeah, I would say they're largely the same, depending on you know how you unpack it and approach it. One of my friends was telling me that I should tell people more that I'm a mental health professional because technically I'm that. I build an organization that can respond by building advocacy and support networks. So I have a master's in counseling, was doing that. 
doing that meaning that I was providing therapy and and support and doing different coordinations. I worked in a few different jobs, methadone clinic, group home, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So I always knew that I enjoyed helping people and supporting them navigate from one space in their life to another. The piece with being a very traditional counselor is that you're you're in office doing therapy with people probably you know, five to six hours a day doing paperwork the rest of that time. And and seeing that and then the networks of being a therapist and you know dealing with insurance and dealing with the atmosphere in psychology, which is largely guided by the white philosophy and psychological mm-hmm. theories and having an outlook that's very specific and focused on you know black people, people of color and issues that they navigate in ways that other folks don't deal with. I just felt like, okay, I need to have my own. Why sit up here and wrestle with these folks to be more inclusive when I can just create something? Mm-hmm. Uh, so from there, I was already doing activism. I did a lot of stuff with Black Lives Matter. Did a lot of teaching and speaking and just the same vein of the things I do now. And I was like, all right, well, if I can just build my own organization to do this. Mm-hmm. Didn't know anything about how to, to, to do it. It's a whole process. <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. So basically <laughs> a business, which um, you have to, to know how to, to manage. But that's in the middle of all the things I was doing. That was just another expression of my values to mm. move like this. Yeah. So do you do any counseling anymore on the professional side or it's completely, no, no, no. no, (laughs) don't do that. (laughs) But I can always consult because, you know, of course I went to school for it. It helps in ways where you can look and pick apart research Mm -hmm. and really be able to identify how what I'm doing works and what makes it impactful as opposed to kind of moving off my own energy and charisma like I know exactly what makes this important and I know how the research trends, I know how they talk about black men in a way that I don't think someone who came from a different field from uh, counseling or social work would be able to do. Yeah. Cause you have all the background and you're coming at it with the thought of, I mean, there's a lot of empathy involved, I'm sure. And removing your personal experience and more having empathy for what others are doing or have experienced. Yeah. So with B men, I mean, is it, just local to Boston or is it an organization people can interact with from anywhere? People can interact with it from anywhere. Due to COVID, we had to create a digital format for our support spaces and meeting. So any physical activities are focused on the Boston, the greater Boston area. So when we do the Bridge and the Gap program event, which is something where we partner with the Transgender Emergency Fund, it's another organization to bring black straight men, trans women of color together, to talk about how we exist and, and overlap in our lives, the stigma that we go through so we can create better outcomes for both with the, the big focus on creating better outcomes for trans women of color. That will have to be in person because that's where we are. Uh, but the digital stuff can happen from anywhere. Cool. No, that's great. And is most of the focus on the Me Too aspect still or did it expand to just like generalized experiences and different subjects? Oh, it just it just expanded. So what the Me Too part became was us doing sexual harm workshops that we did uh, a year or two ago and holding that as something that that's in our bag or something that we can do. Thinking about consent, mm-hmm. 
think about men's approach to their bodies as well as to the people around them. Uh, so that's still there, but like you said, it just expanded. Mm, cool. And as far as your activism and your work with Black Lives Matter, I assume you're still doing that. Oh, no, no, not anymore. No, no not at all. From, from that piece. But I did it for a good period of time. It was about six years. Uh, okay. Of just really learning what bringing something up from the ground looks like. We used to go out and talk to these groups of people around what Black Lives Matter meant, how it was relevant to issues at the time, how we think about incarceration and police brutality. And, and my more recent work has kind of transitioned into restorative justice. So okay. all of my stuff kind of just kind of grows outward. You know, one, mm-hmm. one part may end in my connection to on the ground work and that form of activism. But I've picked up the restorative justice piece. I've picked up the Men Foundation. I picked up the just the advocacy and the constant educational stuff that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about restorative justice and what that means, basically, just for listeners to hear from someone who is working in it versus me explaining it now and then asking yeah. you to agree? <laughs> for sure, I, I came across it in the. There was a package of ideas that came in the Black Lives Matter movement, movement against police brutality, whatever synonymous frame that you have for how we started to think about our relationships to police and police brutality after the death of Trayvon Martin that happened about 10 years ago. Which is crazy. It's that long ago now. I mean, Yeah, it's, it's insane. Restorative justice was one of those ideas in kind of this, this grouping of thoughts that we, we had around how to be different. And basically what it means is creating alternative responses to harm that don't lean on punishment. Mm -hmm. So you're restoring people's relationship to community as opposed to ostracizing them or punishing them. And there's Mm -hmm. a variety of things that come with that, that can be considered restorative or within the, the realm of restorative justice. A lot of restorative justice is derived from indigenous groups uh, natural ways of orienting themselves toward holding community and responding after harm. So I've, I've done a good bit of work in that. Sitting in circle, like literally in a circle of people, is one of those ways to to talk about and build community as well as respond to things that are, are harmful. So there's there's things that happen within the judicial system that also can be considered restorative justice, uh, where people who have done some level of criminal offense are able to meet with the victims of their crime and sometimes it can impact sentencing uh, sometimes it doesn't but we're seeing more opportunities to think about how we navigate the prison industrial complex that's different from what we were doing before as we've seen that's been so harmful to black people of color yeah well and yeah just the punishments are longer often yeah. get sent to different facilities things like that so when you look at your overall what you've been doing and you were doing the counseling activism, which you're still doing, but in a different way and be men. And you did say like it reflects your values. So it seems like your work has always reflected your values. Was that something that like, did you get into counseling because you wanted to help people? I mean, you had the whole time to think about during college and grad school and stuff like that. So how did you become a values centered person? I guess. The church, the church. I grew up in a church. I don't know if, if you've had the experience, but for the folks who have, 
you know, when you go, you, I went to a private school mm. that was a Christian private school. I would, would be with my grandmother. Uh, don't let it be a revival in town. We, we go into church every, every day, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then you're on the usher board, you speak in Easter Sunday, you know, you just have all of these things that are boiled into you about how to value people and treat folks well and wanting to be in a very Baptist sort of way, kind of the light that shines where people can mm-hmm. be attracted to the work that you do. So that I think I, I just came up with that. My dad was a pastor. It just it was always around in that level of community and centering uh, mm-hmm. what people need primarily through kind of a spiritual way. But I think I, I took that into my everyday life. And then I grew up in community centers. My mom had me in community centers, community programs all the time. And mm-hmm. she, she runs one now and has been involved in running this as long as I can remember. Uh, uh, and then my, my dad being a pastor, my, my stepdad t- teaching me all these things about how to be in service. My stepdad used to make me read black history books when I was little and write a report. I hated it. At the time, I tell him how appreciative I am of, of him because all of these things made me like, oh, we have to treat people well. We have to treat people better because all of that history is something that I carry with me so much now and that value for people that look like me. And I remember after Black History Month, you know, there's a standard stack of facts they give you in Black History Month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yes. I always knew more. And I always just thought about it differently. All of these things just put me in a, this particular box to where my values are always in the front of how I want to be. I want to wake up when I'm 65, 70 and be like, I, I did everything I wanted to do. You know, mm. I, I I don't have any regrets around what I could have offered the world. That's what I want to be. And I feel like yeah. I am. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. And it, it's interesting with the church. I mean, I have various experiences with religion that some aren't great. I mean, religion's also used as a weapon in the U.S., for sure. <laughs> we have the whole separation of church and state. However, when you look at the church, it's really the Christian right wing, oh, whatever, yeah. has this huge stake in the government and in law. And we're seeing it now in the don't say gay bill. And we're seeing it I mean, all the time. I don't want to get into that because I'll take away from what your message is today. So it's a weird thing how it's worked out in the u.s but then the religion you're talking about and the church you're talking about is very different because it's very service-based and it's more in line with what the bible i would say is teaching i mean if i was gonna say like yeah i i believe in some part of it it would be that part not the this other stuff you know if if i'm honest sometimes it's not different you know i yeah. I'm still you know the south is the south you know i, yeah. I don't know what you know about the Bible Belt, but it it uh, well, yeah, it, it it can be intense down there. And for me to have my value set and the way that I grew up and all of my beliefs to to come together, it, it's there are contradictions that I had to navigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are spaces that I know because I I've done so much work and thought that I can navigate and I can start having those those dialogues. So even with the the don't say gay stuff, I'm thinking in my mind, you know. All right, as a a dude that does this work and does this level of advocacy, uh, straight black guy, I know that there's a ear that will listen to me in a way that won't listen to the other. Mm-hmm. So yeah. how do I use that? Because you know, I do. I I think about it. Like, hmm, what's what, what what would my how would my B men's pitch be in that place? Because it would have to be different. 
Right. <laughs> it would have to yeah. be different, but this, the goal is to end up at the same point. The Christian radical right is uh, is something that you know black people have been dealing with since we've gotten here. You know, since yeah. he brought us over on ships and uh, tried to uh, Christianize us, and then changed changed it just so that if you were baptized, that uh, you were still considered a slave because being a baptized Christian is all of these ways that yeah. religion was used to codify the institution of slavery, uh, mm-hmm. and it still happens as it relates to racism. So even in my advocacy. Uh, I don't lead headfirst with the in the religious sector, but I know from my history and what I've been through, and I know I come from that. I got to deal with those contradictions too, and, mm-hmm. and work that I'm doing is is that much more important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, and it's interesting too. Like, your, yeah, your faith is kind of something that provided you with the the service mindset and stuff, but then also has led you to have to serve in a way. So. Yeah, because I'm always yeah. like, you know, I, you know, I, I be like, I don't know, we, we have the same, you know, religion, you know, mm-hmm. technically, but I don't know who they praying to because the way they moving is real different. Because I, uh, yeah, I've I've had I've had a lot of really hard conversations with people who, uh, you know, come from the the church because it can be a lot of stuff that can be really harmful that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's yeah. why I say I, because I, I come from that space. I know how people think I got to be in there doing the work to deal with that stuff. So other folks ain't got to deal with it. That's, mm-hmm. that's my, my theory on being an ally, being an accomplice is that, yeah, I, I got you on this. If you got me on that, I got you on this. Yeah. Well, an allyship is another thing that I found that there has to be care taken with it because you can do harm. Like someone like me. I've learned a lot in the last couple of years and especially, I mean, with the death of George Floyd, I mean, that was the big moment for a lot of people, even though you would say, well, yeah, and I've been dealing with this forever, uh-huh. but then, you know, for, and I would say I was trying to be an ally before, but then I became much more aware of what that meant uh-huh. and much more aware of experience because seeing that and knowing if that person looked like me or resembled me or a family member or something, it would have been a lot different experience than, Mm-hmm. what I went through with watching it and, and the emotions and stuff. And so I, one thing though that I learned was like, don't ask people what the problem is. Like don't ask them to tell you why it's a problem. Learn more about the experience. But I do think that there is a need to ask questions sometimes, but how do you feel about that? Like what, if I can just ask something that's probably like an annoying question, but like what should people do who want to be better allies at this point, like, cause you know, there's a the whole idea, like companies look for black history month, they'll promote stuff, but then have a sale or some weird, like, that's not what it's about. Like no one's worried. You didn't get 20% off on a shoes. That's not the problem, you know, or, you know, people will post memes or like when the, the black lives matter, um, the blackout on social media and then everyone, all, everyone put a black square. So then it was like, well, now you're taking up space somewhere else. So just from your perspective, if you were going to tell someone like me how to, like what's helpful or harmful, if you don't mind, what would you say? I would always say the um, just keep digging within the question. So somebody, somebody was like, well, what can I do to be a better ally? Ally to what? In what way? Mm-hmm. What is it? What is it that's bothering you? What is it that you want to do? So taking out all of the work from me to have to process that and then be like, all right, 
Well, where do you see yourself being the most purposeful? Or what is your understanding of this this problem to this moment? I've done a lot of work. I, I'm not. The, yeah. I used to be real different. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I just acknowledge that. And I think also within our how we think about uh, allyship and and being supportive to people, we have to, it's okay to to not have always been where you are now. I think sometimes people are afraid of that. But as it relates to the don't say Gabriel, maybe a me from ten years ago might ask somebody, yay, what they thought about it. What do you think about this? You give me the summary of your experience reacting to this thing that is obviously terrible for you. The me now, I'll go into it, read it. There's podcasts everywhere. You know, we're on one now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. get somebody that really boils it down and, and summarizes it. And then I can find a direct spot of intervention. So then my question becomes, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing to address this. What do you think? Now Mm -hmm. it's far more concise around my my intent and and an action plan has already been developed. Now, if if it's somebody who's wanting to understand it better and they're not even at that point, then I'd kind of keep it more general because I, I think there's a group or a segment, let's say if it relates to white and black issues, a segment yeah. of white people that are just like, just tell me what to do. I do whatever. I'm so bad. Yeah. You know, and tell me, tell me I'm a bad person. <laughs> 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 it's just like, it, it gets, you know, it can get weird, but just having discussions around distinctions and differences. I think that's what's mm-hmm. a, a powerful intervention. Even just the support spaces that we do for, for black men is bringing people together to talk about these things. That's a big thing. Just bring people together to mm-hmm. talk about this issue and just process it. That may be with, let's say if it's for white people, that may begin with white folks. If there's a question that you think you're kind of all reacting to, sit in a space where you can honestly give your opinion to somebody in a way that's not going to hurt the group that you're trying to navigate with. And that might that might actually be your work, just to give people space to process it. But it can be a lot of things. It can be a lot of things. As it relates to, to be men, I would say, I've always been like, oh, donate support our stuff, share our stuff on social media, let people know about the advocacy that we, we do and the, the framings and the perspectives of black men that we have in America uh, specifically and to some degree globally and how harmful they can be because there's people out there doing doing this work and, and mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of connections that can be made. But yeah, so hopefully, I know I said a lot, so hopefully I answered. No, no, that's great. And I think it's good just to be able to ask the question of someone who's gone through the experience of of interacting with someone who's maybe said things and also showing that you've evolved. I think that's important too, because I do think there is a lot of guilt that people feel, but my guilt, if it's mine, my guilt is not your burden. Like that's not the additional burden you need to take on now because I was maybe not doing something in the past or I had some thoughts in the past or whatever. And that's what I think is important just in general, just in thinking about it right now is like, don't put your guilt on the people who you're trying to help because that's not helpful to them. You know, that's kind of some kind of misplaced way of doing things, but yeah, donate. Like maybe if you feel guilty, donate, but don't tell them you donated because you're guilty. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another example, I was talking to a friend of mine from back in college around how things were. And we were talking about how kind of homophobic the atmosphere was and, and tell me about how things impacted him. Uh, with that atmosphere and I, I like I wanted to sit in my own guilt about like who I was then and how I might have thought about it you know I, I think I was 
still progressive and thoughtful, but it wasn't like this. And I probably mm-hmm. thought, said, or did things that are harmful. But, you know, there was an impulse to want to be like, oh, man, I feel so bad. Like to lean into that. And I think just acknowledging it, taking time to process that, and then moving into what you can do now, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of really sitting to, into these guilt-laden uh, spaces where there's some spaces that people just just do that do the thing and like i'm terrible uh, i i uh, you know i just i can't do that <laughs> I, I hate those conversations and yeah. people will try to have them with me that somebody else's ministry is not mine so yeah yeah well so one thing just knowing for example for me like when i do some nonprofit work some of it's really personally exposing for me because I'll be talking about my experience with different things. I, I do work with a couple of organizations um, around issues that are, you know, have affected me. And I know that can get emotionally taxing and difficult. And if I was doing it every day, I think it'd be hard. So how do you work on setting up boundaries for yourself that so you can still enjoy your life, even though you're kind of dealing with really heavy things all the time? Yeah, you, you I've said this before, when, when you're taking on more things that have a emotional tax on you or an intellectual tax on you, even a spiritual tax on you. You have to be more vigorous in the way that you utilize your self-care. You just, mm-hmm. you just have to be. Uh, one of those things is time. You just, you can't just react to things as they're happening or you'll be doing stuff all the time, working all the time. So what are your time blocks that you can devote to this thing? That's one way. Uh, another way is having a therapist. I've had one throughout my life at very different uh, different periods. Get you one, get you a group a group that you rock with. I, I think B men support groups are also therapeutic for me. Uh, a place where you can let off the steam of the the work that you have to do. I make sure I have make more time for myself. There's time. There's a period of time where I didn't really take aside from going to see my daughter uh, in Arkansas. I didn't really take vacation. I was just. Yeah. Getting it every day. Now, if I don't do this, then, you know, this, the world is going to, you know, fundamentally change in it in a uh, way that's irreparable. But I think we forget we're, we're not the first people that are going to care and take on the healing and uh, structural change work that we know needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to be the last. It will yeah. fall apart. But it doesn't mean that the work that we do isn't unique and purposeful but for us to continue to do it in a way that preserves our humanity you have to have boundaries you have to have structures that allow you to flex your emotional range too you know some days you you, you're angry some days you want to cry some days you're happy some things are surprising you Uh, and for me when i'm not flexing that well enough my range of emotion shrinks Mm. it becomes the range that is necessary to complete whatever task that I'm doing. And so I, that's, that lets me know, okay, you need to go do some other stuff mm-hmm. if this is happening. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. That's, I, it's good to just hear about that and what, what's been helpful for you. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. All right. Well, I know you just said a lot that could be construed as advice. So you can just say you want to bypass this question, but I just like to ask people like, is there any advice or mantra you like to share or maybe some like thought you just like to leave people with when you do interviews or talks or anything? I think there's a whole bunch of mantras that I move and, and, and live by. And one of those is 
this moment will never happen again. Like mm. the right now that you have, like me and you talking, you cannot replicate it. It's impossible. So thinking about your life in that way, your every day and, and who you want to be waiting, you can't guarantee that you're going to have another opportunity to be who you always wanted to be. So just do it now, you know? Mm, yeah. Great. Yeah. No, I love that. And that's something that on this podcast, I try to get out. So that's, that's awesome. All right. So now I have a set of questions called the fun five. They're just kind of light. So uh, the first one is what's the oldest t-shirt you have and still wear? Um, I got a shirt that has Arkansas on it. It's a great shirt. Arkansas. It's like kind of faded. Mm -hmm. A few holes in it. I wear when I work out. It makes me look really muscular. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I probably had this shirt for maybe 15 years, but I'm, I'm a hold on. At least I get another shirt. that's almost the same thing. So yeah, that, and that, that's good for working out for flexing. Yeah, yeah, look, you know, you look yeah. big, you know, you want to, you know, have a good pump in a super tight shirt. That's kind of how it goes. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. Okay, cool. And, um, if every day was Groundhog's Day, like it seemed for a while, because we were just having the same kind of re repetition, especially when we're in, in our lockdowns everywhere, what song would you have your alarm clock set to play every morning? You know, it, there's a few, because I listen to music all the time. But if I had to hear one song over and over again, I feel like it would have to be something from Michael Jackson. It had to be some some, some Michael Jackson maybe remember the time yeah i would i would go and re remember the time yeah okay yeah and it starts off kind of it has cool sounds in it and stuff yeah all right cool so remember the time and then coffee or tea or neither neither actually in the morning some days i'll i'll drink i'll drink raw eggs just really protein yeah it's disgusting but <laughs> it's <a> <laughs> i'll do that i've done it for years and years and years uh so no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't do any caffeine generally unless there's good. significant going on. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, raw eggs is the first time I've heard that answer, but that's, that's good. <laughs> it's good. I can be surprised sometimes, you know? Um, all right. And then can you think of a time that you like laughs already cried or just something that cracks you up when you think of it that just makes you happy and laugh? So I, I, I love laughing. Cause that's my way of, of having balance. So I, people either say I'm like either serious or sarcastic. Like I, there's, mm -hmm. there's no real in between. There's this video. <laughs> I don't know what. So insane. They recreated the sound of a mummy. Uh, <laughs> and they have, they, they, it's like an interview where they're on, I want to say ABC, NBC, and they're talking about the process and they recreate what the sound is. And it's just like some, mm, something like that. But mm -hmm. people have dubbed over it and put like pretty <laughs> ridiculous sounds in the in the place of what the sound the mummy would be. And every time I think of it, I, I laugh because it's just so absurd, ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> but very, yeah, it sounds good. Yes. All right, and uh, then who inspires you right now? Uh, me, me. And you had to forgive me if, if it sounds arrogant, but I, you know, I just been through so much, and in the the work to constantly be on the edge of things that you don't know and trying to get better at, uh, that's a that's a conscious struggle every day. Because I could just find a thing and just do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that could be my thing. But I 
part of working around stigma and talking about these unconventional topics is that I have to I have to lean into the unknown always. You know, if you imagine somebody going through the jungle and they're like, there's a path and then it's like, oh, I want to do a new path. And he's just like whacking, you know, weeds and stuff. I feel like that's me all the time. And and having to be comfortable in that is, is a whole process. But to be able to kind of look in the mirror and see who I've become and and know that I'm the culmination of all of these people and, and friends and family uh, and even my child that have just poured into me and I'm I'm still here. I, I, I'm inspired by by still being here. I'm inspired by who I see in the mirror every day. Yeah. I, I think it, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's arrogant. Like it sounds at first if you go, oh, well me, but then you hear why. And it's, I think it's great. So yeah. it should be, I think you're, I think you're great. <laughs> so for what it's worth, Thank I'm inspired by what you're doing. Um, yeah. All right, Martin. So if, if people want to find you and find your organization, where do you want them to go online? And of course I'll have it in the show notes too. Yeah, you can uh, check out our organization at bmenfoundation.org. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, at bmen. Uh, to see more about the work that I'm doing as well, you can check out martinhspeaks.com. So, yeah, I'm out here doing this work, and, and you'll see me doing more of it as time goes on. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was really great to learn about what you do and the really important work you're doing. So thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Let me. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the guest and what was talked about in the show notes. Joe Mafia created the music you're listening to. You can find him on Spotify at Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. Rob Metke does all the design, for which I am so grateful. You can find him online by searching Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Please leave a review if you like the show and get in touch if you have feedback or guest ideas. The pod is on all the social channels at, at More Than Work Pod or at Robbie Comedy on TikTok, and the website is morethanworkpod.com. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself.